Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly Tuesday morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Tuesday, it's weird, isn't it? It's weird. We've won it's a we- one It's day- weird. It's especially weird for it to be goodly. I don't know if you saw the stats floating around about Mikel Arteta's away record on Monday Night Football, but yeah. uh, four games and... I think four defeats. It was certainly no wins before. We did win a. We looked at this uh, in the uh, on the Patreon pods. We did win a Monday game last season, but it was in the FA Cup against Oxford. So, yeah. you know, there is a, a slight precedent for us not being completely terrible on a Monday night. So now the Monday night Premier League hoodoo is off our back. Surely nothing can stop us. Exactly. Another one. Another hoodoo falls by the wayside. Can I just say? Um, this morning, uh, thank you to everybody who sent me the uh, the commentary from the Argentinian commentator Bambino Pons, uh, hoping that it was going to end up in uh, some kind of a remix for the theme tune for the jingle for this uh, this particular episode. But I just haven't had time, and it's actually quite complicated to try and do something with this. And I felt like I needed more time. Have you heard this? No, I haven't. Okay, he's the guy who did, you know, he sings when a player scores as clips of him singing. He did one last year. I think it was Odegaard as well. It was Ode to Joy uh, that he did, if you remember. <laughs> okay. But this is, uh, this is his commentary from last night as, as Martin Odegaard is about to take the penalty. So here we go. 
オデガールゴールビサラップケベドラティエネエゴールパラロスガーネロイソデガール Porque este campeonato se quiere llevar, Arteta ya lo sabe y la quiere pelear, porque el gran campeonato del City de Pep, quédate, que este año los Gamers quiere ser campeón, ya no hay más excusas, se han reforzado y nadie le impide que puedan soñar. Quédate, quédate con el Arsenal, porque está ganando 1 a 0, Panchito. Wow. <laughs> Peter Drury's got some fucking work cut out yeah, for him. Yeah, the, the prep time has gone in. Uh, yeah. Almost harmonies within that. Exactly, I, yeah. The co-commentator's getting involved as well. It's brilliant. Yeah. I want to hear that on the terraces uh, next week. <laughs> uh, 60,000 Arsenal fans furiously looking at Duolingo, trying to figure out the lyrics to that. Um, wow. That, yeah, I mean, that is he's raised the bar. We're can, all eyes on Drury. Yeah, all eyes on Peter Drury right now. Forget your poetry pal it's all about the slightly off-key singing so yeah. we'll see we'll see what they come up with um but look what a what a good win it was and there's plenty to talk about isn't there because there's a game full of incident there's still questions i suppose you might say about you know arsenal's start to the season even though we've got six points from six two wins from two Everyone's got questions and thoughts and ideas and opinions. So is the best place to start with this one, the team from last night, in that the only change was Takahiro Tomiyasu coming in for Jury and Timber. And, and that aside, it was the same uh, as the team against Nottingham Forest. Yes. Uh, were you surprised by that? Yes. Slightly in that, you know, when I was writing about the game on the blog uh, on Monday, it was like, okay, you're going to Selhurst Park. It's a difficult place to go. You want to be as solid as you can possibly be. I really felt like Gabrielle coming back in, uh, Ben White going to right back, Partey in midfield with Odegaard and Rice gives you that, that nice solidity for an away game. And I was, I have to say, a little bit surprised by the exclusion of, of Gabrielle. And, you know, speaking about it afterwards, I just want to read out what Mikel Arteta said, if I can find the the little bit here. I did have this open, but of course uh, I can't find it. Okay, yeah, here it is. Um, he was asked about it afterwards because the speculation, obviously, about Saudi Arabian uh, clubs being interested in him, and he was asked if that played into the decision. He said, no, it's about the games we were expecting how we're going to defend and attack and what I believe is the best thing. He has played in both games and helped us win both games for different reasons. He was really good today. He absolutely dominated the box when he came on and he's going to play a lot of games. That's the decision sometimes. And look, I get it. It sort of plays out to an extent, but I'm not really 100% convinced this particular team selection, if you want to call it a system, I'm not necessarily sure... I would go so far as, as calling it a system. I just don't really feel like it's 100% tactical. That's all. I, I Logic and common sense just makes me think there's something else. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I said the same last week that my, my spidey senses are tingling around this one. Um, 
to be fair, I think people had very different feelings about Gabriel just before kickoff and just after kickoff because obviously he did come on yet again. I think he finished the game wearing the captain's armband yeah. and played a pretty big role at the back there. So he didn't look like a player on his way out the door. Um, and everything we heard from Arteta in the press conference uh, suggests, you know, he's staying and Fabrizio Romano did a kind of news bulletin last night saying, from what I understand, you know, Gabriel's not going anywhere, um, which is reassuring. But uh, yeah, it is a little bit curious, I think, to see him out of the team. I mean, I was trying to think about it, like what would be the rational explanation? Because Gabriel has been so instrumental to everything we've done over more than a season now. Um, and I did wonder if maybe it's as simple as because he's added more physical players to the starting lineup, particularly, say, Declan Rice, because he's got Thomas Partey in that back four, either Timber or Tommy Asu on the left, does he feel that physically he's kind of covered and he can afford more technical players in the middle, like a Ben White, say, to help with the build-up? That's the closest I can get to kind of a logical mm. reasoning for a ta- for the tactical decision. But yeah, I, do, I, I find myself not fully buying it. Um, I mean, it, it is inconceivable to me that Arsenal could, at this point in the window, let Gabriel go. No. Uh, I think it would be disastrous if that were to happen. I agree. I agree. Um you know, this guy has been basically a, a first name on the team sheet player for Mikel Arteta for the guts of two full seasons, basically. What was it, 73 consecutive starts? I mean, that's um, that's pretty close to two full seasons. It's Bukayo Saka stuff. It is, yeah. Who Did he equal Paul, Paul Merson's record last night or beat it? I'm not sure what it is. I don't know. He's in that ballpark. I, I, I think the other thing that makes me, again, sort of slightly... Mm, uncertain about the tactical element of it is just that what has been a, a key cornerstone of all Mikel Arteta's teams since he came into the club, he has insisted upon a left-footed yes. centre-back. He's always wanted, you know, he brought Pablo Marie in straight away. Uh, Gabriel was a summer signing the year after. Wherever possible, he has wanted to play with a left-sided centre-half, true left-sided yeah. centre-half. And I just don't fully buy him sort of divorcing himself from that, even though we're in this era of flexibility and needing to mix it up and be more unpredictable. Yeah, my gut says there's there's more to this one than meets the eye. Yeah. Whatever is happening, I just hope it blows over ASAP. And to be fair to Gabriel, he did look very engaged when he came on. No question about his commitment when he came on because he was, you know, he was really up for it and and he enjoyed some of the 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 scrapping towards the end. There's no question about that. You know, sometimes you can see a player who you know, isn't fully there or is maybe going through the motions a little bit. And there's certainly no sense of, of that based on what we've seen from him in the last two games. I do just worry a little bit about it because there are other aspects of this team which are new and developing. For example, Declan Rice, we'll talk about him. Kai Havertz, obviously, as well. Um, Eddie and Ketty up front isn't exactly new, new, but it's certainly not our, our first choice. And I do wonder maybe if, you know, if I'm trying to think of a reason why it's Partey at right back, ostensibly, um, maybe the absence of Zinchenko is playing into this a little bit as well, because, uh, you know, if you, 
if you start Zinchenko at left back, can you also start Partey at right back? Mm. I'm not sure that that is the right kind of balance. So I wonder if the inevitable return of Zinchenko for however long he stays fit might be the precursor to to bringing Gabriel back in. But, you know, you could still make a very good argument that, um, you know, Saliba-Gabriel is your central defensive partnership with Ben White on the right. It could be Tommy Asu on the left. It could be Zinchenko. It could be Timber. Well, it could, it could have been Timber, obviously. And then that midfield trio... Uh, of of Partey, Rice, Odegaard allows Rice to do that settling in thing. And, you know, this is where I struggle with it because I don't think there's any brilliant tactical reason. I've seen people say, well, look, if you're if you're going to dominate the ball, if you know you're going to have lots of possession, maybe you need one less defender. You know, I sort of see that point, but I do think, I do think however way you want to look at it, the Gabriel situation is strange however you want to try and find the explanation for it, whatever it might be i think so too i think so too i think it's too big a divorce from arteta's usual thinking uh to be purely tactical and I, i'm sure there'll be people listening saying you're making too much of this he said it's tactical he's played come on as a sub in both games we're going to rotate now i know there are lots of people who are of that mind all i can say is that you know the bits and pieces i'm picking up tell me that there's slightly more to it than that um and yeah i i, I trust uh you know what i'm hearing on that respect and, and and i think one of the reasons i've got this kind of nagging doubt in my mind is just that it's always been very clear arsenal need to sell some players this window mm. and there are a number of quite sizable transfer fees they probably anticipated getting that they haven't got and um this is my own paranoia i will admit but okay. there is part of me thinking like do they have to redress the balance in some way do they have to balance the books and could a very large sum of money for somebody like gabrielle suddenly become appealing but well i mean what is your understanding of the interest from saudi arabian clubs in him because i saw you know a report yesterday saying that he'd met with the I don't know, somebody from the Saudi Arabian Football Association, yeah. whatever it was, which seems unlikely to me, given that it was a match day and the idea that that a player would A, do that, or, or the club would sanction a player to go to that kind of a meeting uh, seems fanciful to me. Nevertheless, it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that a player's representative could have that kind of a meeting, whether it was a match day or something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that could be semantics. I agree with you. I don't think it's very likely a player would be involved in a meeting like that anyway at this stage. But the, the interest is 100% real. You know, there is interest from Saudi Arabia in taking Gabriel there, um, probably for an, an absolutely eye-watering salary. Um, you know, but it, and Arsenal have been aware for a, a couple of weeks that they expect a bid to be incoming. Mm. Um now, of course, Gabriel is under long-term contract. And when you've got a player under long-term contract, you have the power to say, absolutely not. This player is not for sale. And I hope that is what Arsenal do in this situation because, you know, you can always sell a player and you can always find somebody else. Whether or not you can find the appropriate player, what, a fortnight mm. from the transfer deadline when many of the best players in that position have already moved in this window... I just don't know. I, I don't think you can, really. 
No, I mean, there's always a player, but whether it's the right player or whether it's the kind of player exactly that you want, you know, it will be just way too disruptive, I think. Um, whether the money is sufficient to turn Arsenal's head or not, we'll have to wait and see. But I do hope that it's something that blows over because he has been a very, very important player, uh, very important player for us. Let's... Talk I about- also thought, on, by the way, in the starting lineup, I thought there was a chance that Havertz might be up top. I know Eddie scored in the last game, but we did it against Crystal Palace and it worked. I thought there was a possibility we might see that again, but uh, he stuck with Eddie, who had a very eventful evening. He's, yeah, he certainly did. I mean, the the game was not dissimilar to Nottingham Forest mm-hmm. in that I think Palace acknowledged that Arsenal we're going to dominate possession and that in order to in order to uh, stifle us they were going to do what Forrest did and I guess what many teams might do this season is to stay compact not mm-hmm. quite as low a block as as Forrest I thought they they tried to stay compact a bit higher up the pitch nevertheless as soon as we got it forward we had the wide players crowded out. I mean, this is part of why I'm not 100% sold on this Partey at right-back thing either, because, you know, the the Ben white Bakayo saka relationship has been extremely good for Arsenal. Mm. And even that trio of players in in uh, White, Odegaard and, and Saka towards that right-hand side have got, got a great relationship. And I'm not saying Partey was bad by any means. I think he did, uh, I think he did a solid game. But you're missing something, and I think when you when you are trying to break down a team like uh, Palace away from home, you need your best relationships close together. And I think we missed something in the wide areas. Tommy Asu and Martinelli, for example, haven't really played together in any in any significant way before. And then, of course, you've changed that relationship on the right hand side, where Saka, you know didn't get the overlap from Partey in the same way that he gets the overlap from Ben White. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something that would concern you? Because I think, you know, for the most part, Arsenal played pretty well in that first half. You know, it was difficult. It's always going to be difficult when you're playing Palace. They're going to be uh, well-structured. They're going to be difficult to break down. But then is it not incumbent on you to sort of play to your strengths a little bit? It, yeah, I, I'm sort of with you in that I have to be honest and say I don't fully uh, grasp exactly what Arsenal are doing. It's only a couple of games into the season, so maybe that is natural. Um, I, I feel my early feelings about the way we're playing and the way we're setting up is that we've sacrificed some attacking penetration for greater control. Uh, that seems to be my impression of kind of the Forest and Palace games uh, together. I think we've actually been pretty comfortable in both games, but we've had less maybe variety and uh, combination play in the final third. Um, Whether that's deliberate, I highly doubt because, you know, Arteta was asked after the game, what do we need to do better? And we need to put the ball in the net and score more goals. I think he must be aware of that. I think we do miss that white combination with not just Saka, but with Odegaard as well. It's kind of an intriguing role he's playing because he's the right-sided centre-half and, you know, it's basically a back three at times. But he is given occasional licence to get forward and combine. Um, But I think we would look better if he was doing it more regularly. 
you mentioned earlier, like, is this all going to shift when Zinchenko comes back in? And I hope that's right. I hope that when Zinchenko comes back in, he starts doing the inverting into midfield. Ben White moves out to right back and we see Gabriel uh, back in alongside Zinchenko at centre-half uh, with Saliba on, on the other side of him. I, I just think that there is more balance and I don't think it's just familiarity. I just think that that setup does mm. suit us better than what we're currently doing. But, but Zinchenko's not been fit you know no 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 but he got some minutes yesterday and we'll talk about the impact of the subs in in, in a little while i mean it was a tight enough first half there weren't a load of chances but i think it's fair to say that we probably should have gone in ahead Mm -hmm. uh eddie hit the post and then he had another chance from close range that he kind of scooped over the bar you could see what he was trying to do um with the finish but it didn't come off it looks bad i think it looks almost a bit worse than it actually is. But there were elements of his game yesterday where I thought he was really impressive in, in terms of how he collected the ball, some runs into the box, some combination play, um, particularly with, with Saka at times. Uh, it looked it looked pretty effective. And, you know, he will, I'm sure, be kicking himself that he didn't uh, do better with those two chances. But um, what, what did you make of him in, in that role? I thought he was really good. I have to say, um, I, I know he missed two presentable opportunities. I think particularly the second one. You know, the first one, it's all mm. his own work, great turn. Uh, and I, he, I think he does pretty much everything right with the finish. I think if he aims any closer to the goal, it probably hits Sam Johnson's foot. So, uh, you know, I've got sympathy with him there. The second one, mm. I, I'm not convinced it was on, really, what he was trying to do there. Um, and I wonder if the first chance was in his mind when he hit it. But I thought his all-round game was uh, excellent, actually. One of his better performances in an Arsenal shirt. And, you know, I I remember, obviously, he wins the penalty in the second half, but there was an occasion in the first half where he had the ball on the left-hand side and went on a a good dribbling run where, you know, he sort of claimed for a penalty. I don't think it was one at all, but he was a threat, you know, in in all sorts of areas and worked exceptionally hard. you know, it's the old joke. He did the Gabriel Jesus impression to a T. Uh, always combination <laughs> play, just not the finishing. So, well, no, he even got the Gabriel Jesus finishing. Indeed, oh, yes. indeed. Um, I thought he was very good. And I know that some will say, well, the job of the striker is to put the ball in the net. But the job of the striker these days is much more than that. And the other aspects of the game... Uh, I thought he justified his slip. Yeah, I thought he worked hard as well. You know, when we went down to 10 men, I think his yeah. last his last bit of action on the pitch was to uh, nip in front of a uh, Palace player as they were threatening on the edge of our box and he got, a, got himself in the way and won a free kick and eased a little bit of the pressure. So, yeah, look, strikers will always get judged by goals. I understand that. Uh, but I thought he played, I thought he played pretty well. Um, second half then... And we get a penalty, 51st minute, quick free kick. Eddie runs on, keeper comes out, doesn't get there. Eddie goes over. I mean, I have to say, this is one of those where I've uh, voiced my frustration about these kinds of penalties in the past where, you know, it's one of those where the player kind of falls into the goalkeeper, but the goalkeeper has mistimed it also. Um, yeah. has it, and has Eddie got the ball under control is the other question, you know. Yeah. Has he just booted it behind? <laughs> yeah, I uh, which I think a lot of strikers do in this situation. But, you know, uh, within the laws as they are currently interpreted, 
that's a penalty. So Bakayo Saka picked up the ball and then handed it to Martin Odegaard, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and we Mc- discussed that in preseason. Yeah, if there might be uh, a shift there. Yeah, I wonder what that was because obviously there's a pecking order going out onto the pitch when the players, you know, um, go out there. They know who's the number one penalty taker and and everything else. I mean, how do you view that? Like if, for example, we don't know the reason um, exactly, but maybe Bukayo Saka wasn't feeling particularly confident about taking a penalty away from home in a London derby and delegated to, you know, his captain uh, to take it, who took responsibility and, and put it away. I mean, is that is that the right thing to do if you're not feeling confident? Or should you, as the number one penalty taker, you know, get over it and, and have a go and maybe restore your confidence by scoring a goal. Well, he's missed a couple of yeah. late, Bukayo Saka. Um, and obviously he had that big miss very early in his career that I don't think, you know, he, for England, that you know he, he will always be a kind of uh, a painful memory for him. Mm. Odegaard doesn't have the same kind of trauma around penalty kicks as far as I'm aware. I think it's, Equally plausible, you know, you say maybe Saka wasn't feeling confident. Maybe Odegaard just was. Maybe when that whistle blew, Odegaard thought, yeah, I'll take this. And yeah. any manager will tell you, if you get to a shootout, for example, it's the guys who put their hands up, who volunteer, that that mostly end up doing it. You know, sometimes you pick your best five, but sometimes there's just players who say, I fancy it. And I thought it was really interesting that Odegaard took it. And then when he scored, it was a nice penalty as well. Saka was one of the first over to him and seemed absolutely overjoyed, you know, seemed very, very happy and, and relieved to be ahead. So there, there wasn't any bad blood about it, which I think is a really positive development. Yeah, no, I didn't think there was anything weird about it. It was obviously a decision that they made together for the benefit yeah. of the team. And it worked out, it worked out really well. Nice penalty too, actually. Yeah. I like the run up. Uh, it makes it difficult to read and, yeah. uh, he just seems very, very composed in those situations, Martin Odegaard. And, you know, I think he's got the right kind of mentality to 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 take on those pressure situations. So wouldn't surprise me at all if he uh, sort of usurped Saka as, as the first choice taker for a little while at least. Yeah, maybe not. Now, uh, immediately afterwards, Palace, as often happens, it's so weird, isn't it, that you, you're in control, you score a goal, and then the opposition come back into it a bit. And mm. Palace did that. You know, Ayu, I think, shot into the the side netting. Not really a great decision from him. And then there was a really poor pass from Partey, and it ended up with Saliba making a foul inside the D, and they had a free kick um, from just outside the box, which Eze put over the bar. And at that point, I think Arsenal decided, right, we're going we're gonna to slow things down a little bit here. Yeah, I- I mean, Palace, as much as we talk about Arsenal's dominance and having the chances in the first half, Palace were in the game. You know, there were moments of vulnerability. I think part of the way we play, especially with Partey and and Tomiyasu as fullbacks, uh, I think there's a bit of a sacrifice of solidity on the flanks for Arsenal in favour of sort of build-up through the middle. And, you know, Ayu had threatened here and there. Um but as you say, as soon as we scored, the momentum of the game kind of swung. And yeah, I think you're right. Arsenal were taking a breather. But I have to be honest and say, I didn't love it. Like, I felt Arsenal's problem against Forest was that having got the goals, they maybe didn't keep the momentum up enough. 
And I felt a little bit like we fell into a similar trap at Selhurst Park where mm. having gone in front, I think we were then maybe a little, um, yeah. what's the word? I, I don't, I, I can't think of the word. Maybe submissive isn't right, but a, a little tentative in yeah. the way we played after that. I, I know what you mean. I mean, there's part of me that thinks, you know, try and respond in a like-for-like like fashion when Palace got back into it up the intensity, up the pressure, mm. you know, cause them a few problems. But I think there's sort of a human nature thing as well where when you've had a couple of moments uh, defensively like we had, like that free kick, like the shot that Ayu took into the side netting, your, your natural inclination is to just, right, come on, let's just slow it down, be patient. Maybe we can invite Palace on to us a little bit. But in this current yeah. era, obviously – you know, the, with this sort of focus on time wasting, which we'll talk about now in a second, it becomes um, it becomes counterproductive in a way because you are being uh, you're under the spotlight immediately from the officials for what they perceive as kind of time wasting. <clears throat> excuse me, but what you're actually trying to do is just sort of you know, uh, gain some composure again and just, just slow it down. You know, you hear people talk all the time, you know, you need a, a midfielder who can put his foot on the ball and just slow the game down and find the passes and things like that. I think there was an element of that to the way that Arsenal responded because we had a, I think we had a goal kick and Partey was a bit slow in giving the ball to Ramsdale and, and the ref had a word and then we go up and we get that throw and there's the whole thing with with Havertz hanging onto the ball. Then he throws it to Tommy Asu, who who took the free kick or took the throw, but but got booked. Um, yeah, I, I had the feeling that I was kind of watching the team talk. And obviously I'm reading between the lines there, but I imagine that maybe at half time, you know, Arteta had said, or maybe in the huddle after the goal, somebody had, Odegaard had said, look, once we get in front, Let's just, you know, stay in control for yeah. five, ten minutes. Don't let them immediately get back into the game. Take our time, uh, you know, be disciplined. I kind of had the feeling that maybe that instruction was there because the players uniformly seem to sort of react in that way. Um, mm. I mean, I, I suppose what, my first question is, like, do you think Arsenal were time-wasting? Is Was that their intention? I mean, I don't... I... I don't think it's time-wasting in the traditional sense, if yeah. you understand me. I think what it was was really about just getting your shape, tempo, getting organised. Controlling tempo. Controlling the tempo of the game, slowing it down a little bit because it had got a bit hectic. Palace were coming back into it. And how do you counter that by slowing it down? And, you know, you do that properly, I guess, by keeping the ball and just denying them any uh, possession. That would be the, the right way of doing it. Yeah. I don't think it was really deliberate time-wasting in, in your classic Tim Cruel sense, you know, where where yeah. it's just so obvious where he puts the ball down for a goal kick and then runs up to and then picks it up and puts it on the other side of his goal to take the same goal kick. You know, it's not that kind of thing, but I think because of this increased spotlight on on perceived time wasting and these new rules or edicts from the officials, I think it looked worse than it was, you know? Yeah, and I think you know, the referee very clearly warned Arsenal, didn't he, when Partey yeah. was tossing the ball back to Ramsdale or whatever they were doing in that corner of the pitch. He couldn't have been more clear. The players were all in a meeting, you know, at the start of the season where they were told this is a new edict. 
the club are very aware of, of what those edicts are and how the referees are going to be implementing them. You're dealing with a human being in the referee. And, you know, as much as we want them to be objective and consistent, it's never going to be the case because they are people. And as soon as he gave that warning, well, in the first place, I think I would have liked to see Arsenal control the game in a more proactive manner that involved them yeah. having the ball. But once you've been given that warning, I also think you have to be uh, aware of that and not naive enough to sort of give him the opportunity to book you. I I, I tend to agree with that, but I still think booking Tommy Asu was was really harsh because yeah. he took the ball and he'd actually thrown it onto the pitch and the ref was taking out the yellow card. So he'd taken the throw in. I mean, this is what Mikel Arteta said after the game about about this. So hang on, here's the clip. Uh, well, if this is the standards, I think we will see eight against eight this season. So you didn't agree with both of them or just one of them? No, I don't agree, no. So the time-wasting thing, they have said they're clamping down on. Did he take too long from that throw? Well, I, I don't know exactly how long you can... Is it three it seconds? It was like 23 seconds or something like that, no, apparently. No, it wasn't. I think, I think it was eight seconds. And right. there's a pre- there are previous ones that are longer. So I don't know. We might have to play with a stopwatch and <laughs> understand um, what's next. It's OK. We won the game. I'm so happy. So happy. He's um, gone full pep, guys. He, he has. <laughs> he has. Metamorphosis. The I mean, hair will start falling out soon. I mean, this was this was the, the first question of that interview. Grit and character to, to see that game out after you went down to 10 men? Great win. I'm so happy. Great win. I'm so happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's somehow more likable when Arteta does it. Just um, a bit. Uh, but... But I, I still think it was a bit harsh on Tommy Asu. It feels like he was the one who took the card for the team, not because of anything he'd done, but maybe because of Partey and because of Havertz. I, I, I feel it's really harsh to book a player for that, particularly in the context of what, what happens next. Yeah. When I was at school, uh, I drew a picture of... Um, one of my teachers and I sort of drew them as this kind of hideous uh, devil man when I was about eight or nine (laughs) and I passed it around the class and everyone was giggling at it and the person who got caught with it got punished for it, you know, (laughs) and I kind of felt like that was exactly what happened to Tommy (laughs) Ashton. I was kind of the Kai Havertz in that situation. Um, if, if either I or Kai Havertz were a real man, we would have owned up to the referee and said, please, but me instead. But instead, we, we sculpt away into the shadows. Yeah. Stat Supremo, Scott Willis, um, doing the hard numbers so we don't have to, said there were 24 seconds between the uh, ball being out of play and when the card was shown to Tommy Asu. Um, there were six incidents longer than Tommy Asu's yellow card. Before the goal, Crystal Palace had throw-ins that took 27, 25, 22 and 22 seconds. Arsenal had a throw-in that took 44 seconds that went unpunished. It, I mean, is it game state? Is it the fact that it's 1-0 and was quite recently 1-0 yeah. and there's a sort of urgency to to what Palace want to do? So you could see actually the Palace fans uh, behind Kai Havertz when he had the ball and, and then when Tommy Asu got the ball, they were sort of, you know tapping their watches and shouting and screaming, you know, as Arsenal fans will do. So I'm not blaming them or anything like that. But I, I think that must be part of, of why that decision was made. I think what Arteta was saying in that little clip that we played is, well, how long is too long? We don't know. Like, is it 
five seconds? Is it eight seconds? Is it 12 seconds? How long do you actually have to take a throw in before you are penalized for for time wasting and well, this is it sometimes you've got 44 seconds yeah. punished and then 24 in a booking I, I i think you're absolutely right about the home crowd um it was one of those bookings and it's sort of part of what makes football chaotic and brilliant and captivating where there are all these kind of subjective factors in play like the crowd like the fact the referee is is annoyed and emotional and trying to make a point but obviously when all that goes against you it does feel deeply unfair and you think of the fact that a few years ago there used to be a rule or certainly a guidance about goalkeepers having six seconds to release the ball um which appears to have sort of disappeared but maybe it wouldn't be the worst idea to introduce you know a 30 second limit on a throw-in or a 25 second whatever it is 20 seconds i think you know is 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 plenty surely and and actually yeah that that six second rule i was I was a little worried towards the end based on what had happened, given that Aaron Ramsdale held on to the ball for quite a little while, which, you know, on the one hand, I was glad he did because it helps you get players up the pitch and all the rest. But, you know, if this referee is a stickler for a a throw-in like that, what might he do, um, you know, when goalkeepers Mm -hmm. hang on to the ball? And at some point, that will be a thing, right? Because we've had this conversation a few times about how goalkeepers hang on to the ball and the six-second rule is now... It's it's ridiculous. You've got goalkeepers hanging onto the ball for 20, 30 seconds before yeah. they release it. At some point, you know, the next um, PGMOL edict will be, right, penalize the goalkeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that will be something that we're going to have to contend with. It's not anything we have to contend with for now. But, but the Tomiyasu booking is then compounded by a second yellow card, which I think is genuinely a disgrace of, of a second yellow card. You know, I've, I've got some issues with games being significantly changed for very little. Like mm. if a player sides down another guy, if he swings a punch at him, whatever it might be, violent conduct or a terrible, dangerous tackle, by all means, issue a red card. I feel like the bar for two yellows has got to be a lot higher than it actually is. There's no good reason to reduce a team to 10 men, like the harshest punishment you can mete out to a player for what Tommy Asu did yesterday. It was, there was barely a touch on Ayu. Ayu, by the way, who committed a much more cynical foul on Bakayo Saka, having been booked in the first half, got away with, I think, a much more cynical and obvious foul and Tommy Asu maybe got caught a little bit the wrong side of the player. And, you know, there was nothing in that to deserve a second yellow card. I really think football has got to to rethink how red cards are issued unless they are absolutely necessary. Because ultimately, it sort of changes the dynamic of a game too much. In this case, given that we came out 1-0 um, winners in the end after what, what I, you know, eventually decided was a very enjoyable rear guard action from us, even though it wasn't that enjoyable at the time. It was very enjoyable after the final whistle. You know, maybe you don't complain too much, but, I mean, what are your thoughts on on that second yellow and, and you know, the point that a team is very harshly punished for almost nothing? Yeah, it, I mean, it's also not just this game. We lose Tomiyasu for another match as well via suspension. Yeah. So, I think given the uh, lack of gravity 
of those two offences, the punishment does feel deeply harsh um, and does and did sort of completely swing the momentum of the game. I think they were two decisions that only happened to an away team. I really firmly believe that a Crystal Palace player would not have been booked uh, and indeed wasn't booked <laughs> for sort of similar incidents. Um, and again, I spoke about the referees being human and emotional and uh, susceptible to bias and all those things. I I almost wonder if, you know, the irritation at Tommy Asu from the first booking factors into the second. Um, but that's not uh, right. You know, that's absolutely not right. No, no, I agree. But I think it's always... Uh, it's always in play, basically, sure. as long as you've got human beings, not robots, officiating. But what I think is wrong is that VAR is not allowed to look at that again. I I completely agree. There's no good reason why, you know, if you are going to mete out that punishment, and like I said, red card is the harshest punishment you can, you can or two yellows, red, whatever way you want to say it, you know, on an individual basis, it's 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 the harshest punishment you can get as a player. You know, the how long would it have taken? How long would it have taken VAR to have a look at that and say, you know what, that's not a yellow card. That's certainly not a second yellow card. What you know, And I do think there is a weight to that as well. You know, I think referees do have a responsibility to say, right, okay, if the first booking, he's a victim of collective time wasting, if that's what we want to call it, does this offense merit a second yellow card for a player? And, you know, I really think... The, the the bar is too low on this. It's got to be raised. Um, yeah. I, I, like I mean, say, I would I say agree. the same. I would say the same if a Crystal Palace player was sent off of that. I would say that is incredibly harsh and mm. not right. And, you know, that's not me just with my Arsenal bias on. Uh, I really do think it, it, it it's not right, unless, of course, it is a, a Tottenham player. Interestingly, our first red card... For a long time, first I think in the league since Rob Holding at White Hart Lane. Yeah, said. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we, so we know- went through all our season without one. But there you go. Um, and now uh, second game in, we've got one. And um, <laughs> we're I'm back, not- guys. We're back. I don't think it's going to be our last. So, like you say, the momentum of the game changed, and I saw you know some people complaining about this a little bit. In that, you know, why did it swing so much? Mm-hmm. Uh, Arsenal were in control. Yes, you're down to 10 men, but you should be able to play um, with a bit more, I don't know, ambition maybe. But, uh, you know, this is one of those where it's an unjust red card. You're down to 10 men. You have to take off an attacker to put on a defender. You're going to sit deep. You're going to stay organized. And it just becomes very difficult to get out when you when you sort of drop back in the way that we did. And I understand why we dropped back. And I think generally we defended really, really well. Palace, of course, dominated possession, lots of crosses, lots of territory. But I think the way Arsenal stayed organized and stayed compact in that in that scenario was actually very impressive. There speaks a centre-half. For sure. Uh, I fucking yeah, see, love that, though, you know? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> They loved it as well. You know, you could mm. see that on the pitch. Um, they love that kind of backs to the wall, digging in stuff. And I think defending in that way can be great for team spirit. And it feels like a massive win when you get over the line. To be honest with you, I was kind of in the camp. I was kind of with the complainers. I, I do think that even <laughs> with 10 men, 
I would have liked, in much the same way that I would have liked to see Arsenal kind of keep their foot on the pedal having scored, I would have liked to see Arsenal control things a little better than they did. I think they defended the box excellently. Um, I think we were fortunate in some ways that, you know, this was a Palace side without uh, Michael Elise and without their new Brazilian creative midfield player or forward. Um so they didn't come up with a great deal, but I thought we defended very, very stoutly. I just think that it took us basically until stoppage time to sort of put a run of passes together. Yeah. Um, I saw a stat that Gabriel, I don't know what minute Gabriel came on, but he only played one pass in his time on the pitch, which I think <laughs> tells you that like it, it, we were doing nothing in possession. No, I mean, um, I'm like you. I would have liked to have seen it, Yeah, but I understand why we didn't. I do understand why we didn't because, you know, when momentum shifts in a game and it can be the same when it's 11 against 11, that, that you, you find it more difficult to be progressive or ambitious when you're under that kind of pressure. And we didn't have an outlet, you know, for a while it was Eddie and then we put Havertz up front and it was really difficult for us to find passes. I think there were a couple of moments where perhaps we could have done a little bit better in mm-hmm. possession. But, you know, when you think about where what we were doing, you know, we'd sack at left back for a while. We'd Havertz up there, Declan Rice. I don't quite know exactly where he was playing, but he was dropping into the back line. I think he was you about know, the eighth centre-half. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was it was a bit like that. So the the... The fact that we defended as well as we did is linked to our inability to get further out, if that makes sense. So like you, I would have liked it. I think we're capable of it. And I do think that this is a team that's technically capable of of doing a bit better with 10 men versus 11 against, uh, against Crystal Palace or, or anyone else for that matter. But I do understand why that momentum made it really tough for us. Yes. And listen, there are teams who... I think you can be more confident of defending the box against. And I'd say this Crystal Palace team, without necessarily a a prolific centre forward and missing some key attacking players, maybe this was one of those occasions where collectively we just thought we fancy ourselves to defend this 18-yard line uh, and keep them out of our goal. Mm. I just think there are other occasions where when you go down to 10 men, you're going to need to show a greater degree of control, um, basically where you're going to be safer keeping the ball further away from your own goal than Arsenal did at Selhurst Park. Sure. But the subs who came on all played their part. We spoke about Gabriel. And obviously once we had Jorginho and Zinchenko on the pitch, I think we did manage to settle a little bit in those final stages. I I think Jorginho's role in this is a little bit, I don't know if it's underappreciated, but I think his experience was really, really important in the in the final 10, 15 minutes of this game. The He's kind of the perfect person. Yeah. Like he, he was organizing things. He knew where to be. There was one brilliant clearance, if you remember, from I think inside the six-yard box when Palace had threatened a little bit um, mm-hmm. and he was there to get it away. We didn't mention the potential penalty for Palace. Um, Eze went down. What, what did you think of that? Because I have to say, I, I thought maybe for all our complaints about the officials, we got just a little bit lucky there. Yeah, in real time, I thought it was a penalty. Um, watching the replays, you can see that Eze is, of course, absolutely looking for it. But So was Eddie. Sure yeah, exactly. No, surely no more than Eddie was. Um 
And I think Partey, the way he sort of sheepishly retracted his leg <laughs> mm. was the manner of a man who knew it shouldn't have been out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, it was a close call. And I think had the contact been a little more significant, you know, and we're talking the movement of a foot by millimetres, sure. then I think we might have seen a different decision. Um uh, but yeah, we we maybe slightly got away with one there. Um, I'm trying to think if that. I mean, there was one Edward header, which sort of you know cannoned off the wrong part of his head really and went wide of the goal. There was that late moment where, um, who's the left back Mitchell? Yeah, fired, fired over. Bar. But yeah, I mean that Ramsdale had had to come out and uh, and make a good block, and it fell for the left back, and he fired it over the bar. Um, yeah, but there was about half a dozen Arsenal players between mm. him and the goal. Yeah, it was very much backs to the wall stuff. Um, and yeah, it was it was enough in the end. I mean, there are going to be questions, and maybe we'll have some questions on on this in part too. But primarily, first and foremost, at this point of the season. Well, at any point of the season, I guess the points are paramount. But maybe when you are in a transitional phase, if you like, between last season's team and this season's team, and the differences that we've discussed uh, in key areas, I guess you've got to say, making sure you get three points on a day where you don't necessarily play as well as you can, and circumstances. Uh, have conspired against you to to make life even more difficult for you. You know, it's it's much better to be analyzing the performance or where you can improve or what you need to do to to take better control of games with the points on the board, particularly at a place like Selhurst Park, where we have struggled in seasons past. Absolutely. And I, I spoke about this on YouTube, but I think we have to be careful not to look at last season through rose-tinted spectacles. And, you know, because it's hard to remember the detail of every game, we just see these runs of win, 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 win. And sure. it's tempting to imagine that it was a procession and that every game was super comfortable and we blew the opposition away. But that is not the reality. The reality is that there were lots of games very like this one, which were close, tightly fought, required us to dig in, to get over the line, had some nervy moments at the back. Leads Felt away, like, remember that one? Yeah, I mean, that's a great example. I, I would actually say I was at this fixture last season. It was the opening day and uh, Arsenal got a 2-0 win. The second goal was sort of an own goal towards the end of the game. Mm -hmm. And I actually think Arsenal exhibited more control and were more comfortable, certainly with 11 men on the pitch, in this fixture than in the one 12 months ago. But because our expectations change, uh, I, I think that the, the reception of it and the reception of the result is somewhat different. Um, I'm with you. I think these are really valuable points to pick up. I think there'll be plenty of teams who who don't get three points at Selhurst Park. Uh, I think the last team to win there was Man City and it was by the same margin, mm. one goal to nil. One nil, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really pleased with it. And I think there are some questions over, you know, the evolution of the team and where we're headed. But the critical thing is to keep 
winning in the meantime, and we've done that. Yeah, I mean, that's what he said afterwards. You have to win in all kinds of ways, all kinds of contexts. Sometimes it's out of your control. Sometimes there are things you can do better, and there's no doubt that that this will be um, analysed by Mikel Arteta and his staff, and they'll think about, you know, the next opposition that we're facing and the games in the future and what might be the best way to set up for those. But, you know, last night could easily have been two drop points and two drop points in this league, uh, when you consider who you're fighting, you know, could be the difference between something important and something not. So Scary, that. But yeah, that is true. It is. is it is. Anything else from last night before we go into part two? Anything else? What do you think of the kit in real life? Oh, I've got a question about it. Oh, do you? So- okay. All right. Let's uh, let's wait and do that then. Okay, we will take a little break here. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Let's do this. Don't cut that out, Andrew. Okay. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. James, uh, I'll allow you, uh, given this is your first Arscast Extra of the season, to go first. Oh, wow. Yeah. I forgot that. Maiden Arscast Extra of the season. Well, Sam, who's at the Canon. Uh, on the kit said one of my key takeaways from last night's hard fought win was that this away kit might actually be low key kind of great do i need to lay off the pre match pints no no i would even say 
lay into the pre-match mushrooms or, or something like that, <laughs> to be honest. Because I was looking at it last night, and what crossed my mind was, remember that Manchester United game against Southampton, I think it was, where the players were complaining that they couldn't see each other because they were wearing, I don't know, gray shirts or the, yeah. the shirts were the same color as the advertising hoardings or whatever the fuck it was, some nonsense anyway. And I thought to myself, well, this is the exact opposite of that. Mm. It's highly visible, highly visible. I don't know how much that actually means. Could in it real be an terms? Arteta instruction? We need the most visible kit uh, that you can possibly come up with. May, I mean, there was a pink kit last season, which would have been highly visible, but we uh, don't think Mikel Arteta was too enamored with that one, uh, based no. on the fact that we, we didn't wear it and wore a black kit instead, which could be seen as much more difficult to see. I don't know. I think it looks good on these highly trained professional athletes. That's my opinion. I, yeah. I I wouldn't wear it myself because I'm fully cognizant of my own physical limitations in that regard. But I think it looks good on these guys. And it's uh, one from one now in the Premier League. So, Listen, all the kits look good when you win in them. That's it. I, that's it. it has grown on me substantially, I have to say. And, and I think you've got to remember that we spend a lot of time sort of staring at it in the club shop or in an image, a leaked image. But how you're supposed to see it is either like Sam mm. from the stands or from a TV picture and, you know, some considerable distance. And I think it looks better uh, from that perspective than maybe it does up close. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think, who knows, it may in time become a cult hit. But I know there are many, many people listening who who do not share that sentiment. No, I, I would of course. like to never see it again. Yeah, we win something in this kit, and I guarantee it'll go down as an all-timer. Simple as that. Yeah, you know? very true. Um, let me ask you this one. It's sort of a broader discussion. Oliver Adams, uh, at Oliver Adams 88 on Twitter, he said, Goodly morning, delighted with the win. The, uh, thought we were a good first half, and then triumphing through... Ad ab <laughs> I thought he was going to say adversity. He said through absurdity made it all the sweeter. However, are you happy with how we're playing? I'm not getting the tingles like the start of last season. Is that good or bad? I mean, this sort of plays into what you were saying about the perception of how we played uh, last season. But I do understand that maybe we haven't clicked, and that's because of the changes that we're trying to implement and being more unpredictable and certain players playing out of position. I mean, do you see that as, do you see our, for example, our ability to win games when we haven't quite clicked? Does that make you optimistic about what might happen when we do? Yes. And, and despite my comments about us potentially looking at last season through roast into glasses, I do still think there's obviously a, a gap in, quality of performance thus far and I think that's been in the attacking third principally I think we haven't been as exciting going forward haven't we we haven't created the same kind of number of clear-cut chances um but I think there is a kind of trade-off there where I do actually think we have looked pretty solid and pretty stable with the exception of one uh blistering counter-attack against Nottingham Forest mm. I think we have looked very secure I think, I hesitate to say, I think we've been more boring in a way that's almost City-esque in these two games where 
we haven't taken teams apart, but there has felt like a kind of inevitability about us getting the result. And actually, while it may be less fun to watch, um, building that solidity may serve us extremely well in the long run, especially if we can add some of those attacking flourishes on the top. I mean, speaking of attacking flourishes, how much do you think the absence of Gabriel Jesus might have played a part in a certain lack of fluidity in, in in the final third? Because, you know, I thought, like you, I thought Eddie did well yesterday. I think he did well uh, against Nottingham Forest. I thought Havertz was all right in the community shield. But those relationships, uh, and certainly the relationship between Jesus and Martinelli, is a particularly effective one. So is that an aspect that we might have to consider? Definitely. I mean, he's our first choice striker. And I, I agree, Eddie did well overall last night, should have scored. Um, but there's still a big gap between him and Jesus in terms of what they bring and what they contribute. Um, there are other sort of factors, you know, Kai Havertz is still settling in and finding his role. We had a ton of questions about him again, so maybe we'll get to one of those in a minute. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think it is that sort of zip in attack that we are currently missing. And I, and I think probably breaking up some of the partnerships, breaking up some of the combinations, the pods, uh, is playing its part in that. Um, and it may be that we build new understandings and new relationships and it may take a bit of time uh, but I do think that with the addition maybe maybe most importantly the addition of Rice I think we have added a kind of sturdiness to the team that mm. is already evident yeah yeah uh, I don't disagree with that I mean we had a question about Havertz. You said we'd lots of questions about Havertz, so let me just throw one at you. Okay. Uh, Fengal on the Discord says, uh, goodly-ish morning. Um, it's a goodly morning, man. We won. Uh, I struggle to see what role Kai Havertz plays in this system. It looks like we've changed our system just to be able to fit him in. Is it worth the disruption from last year? Are we in a transition? And maybe this will be good in a few games' time. I, I, mean, he's, I find him an interesting... Topic of discussion for now. Mm, same. And he's. I think he's going to be one <laughs> yeah. over the course of the season. As we've said many times, he's kind of starting on the back foot a little bit. Um, he's got a lot to prove and a lot of people's hearts and minds to win. I also think he's one of those players who is quite divisive in his style. Um, I think he's... I, I, I understand... The people who look at him and say, I don't really get it. I don't really get what he's offering. But equally, I, I saw a lot of praise for him last night. He seems to have, have sort of divided the crowd quite uh, emphatically. What was your interpretation of his performance? I think that he, the way he moves doesn't always do him favours. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sort of in the like the camp where I'm not in the camp. I, I can I can identify with the people who are saying I struggle to see exactly what he's bringing, right? But I can also see that he's somebody who works harder than it looks, wins a lot of duels, which, as we know, is something that Mikel Arteta is very very committed to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, passed it well enough. Gave us a bit of an outlet late on. Did win some headers. Um, 
he did have one shot, didn't he? Uh, which he, yeah. which he flashed kind of wide. I think I would like to see a bit more decisiveness from him when he's on the ball. I think if you if you could get that from him, it would change the way people are thinking about him because he, it just feels to me like he's a little tentative at times where the decision-making isn't quite quick enough. But again, it's been three games. And I really do think he or any other player who comes into a team that is different from last season, that is changing the way it plays a bit, needs a bit of time to settle in, right? He, You can talk about Havertz not being exactly what you wanted from an attacking midfielder, but you could also make the same point about Arsenal's overall game. As you said, we've been a bit more boring. We haven't created quite as many clear-cut chances. We haven't been quite as dynamic going forward as we were last season. So I'm loath to sort of jump to any conclusions about him, but I can see it from I can see it from both sides right now that there are like your eyes tell you something and the stats maybe tell you something that you didn't quite expect. Yeah, I, I think he's being used in really interesting ways. I mean, he won four of six headed uh, aerial duels last night, which was the best in the game. Um, and it looked like Arsenal were, at times, almost using him as a second striker, a target man. You know, Ben White and Saliba were looking for him quite early mm. and, and Ketia was looking for those knockdowns. And that made me excited to see Havertz in the same team as Gabriel Jesus, because I think Jesus so often has to kind of fight two centre-halves almost single-handedly. But sticking a six-foot-four guy up alongside him at times, uh, I think will will be really dangerous and could be a really handy combination and make Gabriel Jesus's life a bit easier and subsequently our lives a bit better. Um, a lot of his work at the moment is off the ball. He's not a Martin Odegaard, who's someone who wants to drop in and dictate the game and you know, control things, play passes. Mm. Someone who I think is sort of looking to time runs from deep, arrive in dangerous areas, uh, make overlaps where necessary. And our attacking game is not quite yet clicking. Now, I don't reach the conclusion that it's not clicking because Kai Havertz is playing. I just think he is part of a team that is still developing and evolving and, and finding exactly how they're going to uh, mm. attack and break down defences. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And I think you do need more than three games to make any kind of definitive statement about a player and what he's bringing to the team and what he's not bringing to the team. You know, mm. I just think that's, that's normal that the guy needs a bit of time. And if we're having a discussion about him in six months time, I hope it's a much more positive one. Uh, obviously I think he, he has to give us a bit more on the ball, but again, he is just building relationships with the players around him and, you know, playing in different positions and different areas of the pitch. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't get the, I don't get any suggestion that he's not working hard or he's not trying or there's a lack of effort or anything like that. I think if that was the case, you, you'd, you'd be a lot more worried, but I don't think yeah, that's I, the I case bet he's at all. covering quite a lot of ground, to be honest with you. He seems to be. And, you know, in the last two games, he's had to go up top in the final 20 minutes or so. And, you know, he's looked leggy, to be fair. But mm -hmm. understandably, he's been, you know, getting up and down the midfield for the whole game and then asked to go and 
you know, run a defence all on his own. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's he's in a settling in period. You know, he obviously hasn't necessarily had a, a breakout game in the way that maybe Declan Rice did yesterday. Yeah. Um, but that could be still to come for him. But uh, I don't know if we had a question about it, but Rice was brilliant and we've not really touched on it. Very That's much. true. We, uh, I don't think we did have a question because... Um, There's unanim- unanimity yes. in his performance. He was really good, really good. And I think what you're seeing is a, a player whose influence is growing quite quickly. He looks very settled. I like the way he moves the ball or looks to move the ball. I think we're beginning to see some of the way he carries the ball. We didn't see that maybe in the first couple of games, but last night there were a couple of moments where he took players on and ran and, and drove forward and and that kind of stuff. And then, like we said, when it came to the defensive part of the game in the final 25 minutes, you know, he was really important in there as well. So if it's a breakout game, if you want to call it that, I don't quite know, but he was very, very impressive. I think he was uh, alongside... Saliba and maybe Ben White, our best player on the night. Yeah, Saliba had that amazing tackle oh. in, in the first I mean, half, he which... kind of had to because he made a mistake, but, yeah, you know. Some way to bail yourself out, though. It um, sure is. Telling that the attacker, uh, I forget who it was, maybe it was Ayu, Ayu didn't, yeah. didn't even appeal or look at no. the referee. It was sort of so clean. Um, but I agree on Declan Rice. I thought he was excellent, uh, really good on the ball with some of his crossfield passes, uh, were brilliant and that he should have had an assist, of course, for Eddie with that yeah. lovely little pass through. Um, the more I watch him, though, the more I am convinced that the greatest asset he lends this team is his physicality. I think he is so good in duels, in those one-on-one battles in mm. the midfield. He is a, a, a brilliant, brilliant athlete. And I think through that he adds another dimension to the team another layer of security because if he goes into a 50 50 nine times out of ten he comes out on top and i think i i think perhaps watching him from afar i think i didn't necessarily appreciate quite how good he was physically in that respect yeah yeah i mean that that there's presence to him isn't there beyond what he does yeah. with the ball and, and everything else there is you can see that and uh yeah it's coming to the fore very quickly so that's good um what about this is something a little bit uh different so we had a question but where is it ah yes chris godfrey what do you make of the rumors of a pepe return i've seen a surprising amount of support for bringing him back in as saka's backup despite all the evidence pointing toward him being a bit shit and a complete mismatch for how arteta wants to play um i mean i (laughs) You can't say this was a successful signing. No way. Um, I think it may be a bit harsh to say he's a bit shit, but he's been a bit shit for us at times. Um, It's an important distinction. It is, yeah. Uh, I would be absolutely astonished. Genuinely, I'd be really, really surprised if there were plans to reintegrate him and to make him like Saka's deputy or whatever it is. I just don't really understand why if that was the case it would be happening now and it hadn't happened earlier in the summer you know where you you've got preseason to work with a player and Pepe has flaws in his game 
serious flaws. You know, for the system that we play and the way Arteta wants us to play, there are things that are just missing from his game that I don't think we can now, in the 10 days that are left of the transfer window, you know, turn around and make good. So I don't really, I don't really get where that's coming from. That uh, said, yeah. I don't really understand why he was frozen out, if that's the right way to put it this summer. I don't think Pepe ever did anything particularly wrong beyond being a bit shit for us, you know, from time to time. So I don't quite get what the the thinking was on the club's part this summer, because it's not like he was a, a bad egg or a disruptive influence or anything like that. He spent the entire summer training on his own, the only move that we've ever heard anything about is Besiktas. He, he appears to have turned that down. As far as we know, maybe it's still ongoing. I'm not 100% sure. To me, whether this is naive or not, I'm not sure. Bringing him back is maybe about visibility in the final part of the transfer window, much more than any kind of plan to to bring him back into the team. Yeah, we've got to find him first. Well, he's there. He's at London Colney now. He's back. He's you know, obviously got his um, got his boots in the in the locker and all the rest of it. But I mean, would you not be absolutely surprised if Pepe was being brought back to to sort of understudy Bakayo Saka? I just don't get why that would happen now. I'd be shocked. I think in the time since Pepe's been away, as we've kind of talked about on this show, Arteta's team has become even more about control and discipline and I just think Pepe is at odds with that fundamentally mm. that's the kind of player he is I think he's a worse fit now than he's ever been and so I don't see it happening and you're right he's 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 not been a bad egg or anything like it the only thing I've really heard about him on the changing uh, changing room uh, yeah in the in the training ground rather is that he's just very, very quiet, you know? Mm. He, he's maybe a bit introverted and his his personality hasn't made a great impression at London Colney. Um, but I've never heard anything to suggest he's a troublemaker or anything like that. I just think he doesn't he doesn't fit Arteta's vision of what he wants from that position. And for that reason, yeah, I, I don't see him having a role to play this season. Well, I mean, what do you think... We don't have a question about this. We had a load of questions maybe last week or the week before. But it's now the 22nd of August. There is nine days left. There are nine days left in the transfer window. Yeah. Arsenal haven't been able to sell Kieran Tierney, who's not in the squad last night. Rob Holding, not in the squad last yeah. night. Um, following Balagoon, not in the squad last night. Nicolas Pepe, not going to be in the squad, but another player we haven't been able to move. Laconga is still there. Tavares is still there. Um, Cedric is still there. To what extent do you think this final week plus a couple of days of the window is going to play out uh, in terms of Arsenal compromising what they had initially planned at the start of, of this window? Not planned, maybe, but but hoped for might, might be the best way of putting it. I think there's going to have to be a significant degree of compromise. And I think, I have to say, obviously it's not happened yet. I think that is really disappointing as an Arsenal fan. I really 
hoped that this summer we would actually make some of these sales. You know, someone like Tierney, you looked at that and thought, we've got to, we've got to be recouping some serious cash on a player of that caliber. Um, even a player like Tavares, you know, looked like we might turn a profit on him. Uh, apparently he's now turned down Nottingham Forest, which uh, is annoying because they were prepared to pay a sizable sum for it. I mean, on that one, I have a little bit of sympathy for the club because, you know, if you do a deal with another club and you, you're going to basically yeah, double your money on a player and then he turns it down, there's not a great deal you can do about that because it's obviously very clear already to Nuno, to Nuno Tavares that if he wants to play he's got to go somewhere else, but he's also within his rights to turn down a club that he doesn't feel is the right move for him. Absolutely. And and listen, I have sympathy with the club. I'm not, I, I am disappointed in the sales thus far, but I'm not asking for Edu's head on a stick. You know, um, I, I get that you can only, <laughs> uh, you can only negotiate or you can only accept offers that actually come in. Mm. Right? You can't determine the degree to which clubs are interested in your players or the price they're prepared to pay. I'm just saying that for the club more generally, I, you know, I, I, when we were talking about Gabriel, I think they, I think they will have been banking. I think in, in their spending plan, they would have thought, well, there's got to be 50 million at least coming in for, you know, for Tierney and Balogun say. Yeah. Um, and that's not happened. And I think there's going to be a lot of compromise in the next week because we can't register all these players as far as I'm aware. We can't carry them in the squad. We can't give them minutes to play. We can't really keep them happy. So they're going to have to go out. And I I think it's a buyer's market now because it's like Mm. when a squad have, you know, extra players that they need to shed, are clubs really going to pay a premium? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I don't... I mean, I know the market can heat up towards the end. And, you know, the reality of being somebody like Kieran Tierney or Rob Holding or or Cedric or Lukonga, there might need to be a bit of compromise on the part of a player too who, who... doesn't necessarily have the move they 100% want, but in order to to actually just continue their career, they're going to have to compromise a little bit too. So I hope some things can happen. But like you, I hope for better this summer when it came to, to selling. And in particular, in a summer where we weren't trying to get rid of complete dross like we have done in the past, which is really difficult. And you can acknowledge that and say it's very difficult to sell certain players. I I think we were in a better position to make money. And I do wonder if maybe that's something we need to look at in terms of how we, um, how we go forward. Like our recruitment has been good. Our selling has been bad. Would it be fair to say? Yeah. So maybe that's something that the club need to look at in, in how they operate. Maybe, maybe they need a sales guy. Completely fair. Completely fair. And, uh, you know, you spoke about players not exactly having getting the move that they want or clubs not exactly getting the offers that they want in this final week. And I fear that what will happen, the compromise that will happen will be loan deals. Yeah. And all these cans will get kicked down the road. Um, 
and we'll be having the same conversation next summer about, well, finally, <laughs> we're going to yeah. sell some people. Yeah. Um, that's the, I think, the likely outcome here, that a lot of these players will go, well, I'm not 100% sure about this move, but I would like to go and play, so I'm prepared to go on loan. And clubs will say, and Arsenal will say, well, we haven't had a permanent offer that we think is acceptable for this guy, but we have got this loan offer, which gets them out the door and could potentially see their value increase. Yeah. We'll do the deal. I mean, it's not as if there hasn't been some focus on this internally. and, and No, no, you no. Know, um, they know. They yeah, know. Yeah, and yeah, they've yeah, been trying sure. to do it. Yeah. You know? they were, they've... This whole end period of the window, you know, really, the, the Raya thing slightly came out of nowhere and was actually sort of precipitated by a sale. You know, that, that deal was only doable if there was a buyer for Matt Turner. Um, but the whole focus has been on selling players over the last few weeks. And, and yet we are where we are. Yeah. Well, let's see. Let's Having see how- to accept... 80 million for Gabrielle, I guess. Oh, I don't. <laughs> I hope, yeah. Let me ask you this one. Uh, Corporate Goon on Discord. How much should we read into those who haven't made it off the bench yet? It seems to be, uh, it seems to me that Vieira and Smithrow are subs for when we need a goal, whereas Jorginho, Kivio, or Gabrielle are more robust defensive substitutes. And we also had a question. Um, where is it? It's from Peter Hust. He says, how do you see this season going for Trossard? He was really good straight away after he arrived in January. It was also impressive in preseason, but he looks like a guy in the fringes now. Is is the signing of Havertz maybe a problem for him? Well, it's competition, isn't it? Because they, you know, I think Trossard would consider himself an option for centre-forward role and maybe even that kind of attacking number eight role. Um, he's certainly done both jobs already in his time at Arsenal to a greater and lesser extent. Mm. Uh, I was a little surprised he didn't get on against Palace, but Arteta was in full bring on every possible defender mode. I think he would have. If we hadn't gone down to 10 men, I think he would have got on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably right. He probably would have replaced Martinelli later in the game. Already. Um, Already. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think once we did sit off so much, I think they probably wanted to keep Havertz up there just as a target potentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think Trossard offers you that to the same degree. I think he'll play plenty of minutes and I think he'll get plenty of starts as well. I'm not worried about Trossard. The other names you mentioned who haven't got off the bench yet, Smith-Rowe and Vieira, um, I've got more question marks over and I think they kind of need the other competitions to get underway for them to really get an opportunity. Yeah, game state could define Premier League minutes for them, whether it's trying to get a goal or being sufficient goals ahead where you feel like you can make changes, you know, where you could take Odegaard off and put um, Vieira on or Smith-Rowe on, you know, similarly with Saka, um, assuming Nicolas Pepe, you know, hasn't come off the bench to, uh, to replace Saka. Uh, you know, I think those those are those are the games where we'll see them. But of course, it is only two games in the Premier League, and the context of last night, I think, was if not unique, you know, it lends itself to the kind of substitutions that we saw. And and you know, Arteta's been criticised quite a bit for his substitutions. I thought he got it thought he got it right last night. You know, um, I enjoyed it helps when you've got good choices. to Yeah, make. exactly. I mean- Roy Hodgson was uh, marvelling at sort of the strength and depth that we had and, and the kind of experience and quality we were able to bring on. 
And he's right too. You know, we had a really strong bench last night, even though, you know, we've got a couple of injuries or, or what have you. Um, he was able to bring on some really uh, quality players to see it out. Mm. You got one more? Good. Um, I mean, sort of similar about Trossard, really, but Maximoto on the Discord said, do you have a wild card outgoing before the end of the window? We all know the names of who we'd like to leave, but is there someone who would be a huge surprise departure? He said, I don't think it will happen, but I wonder about Trossard being happy as a sub. I don't think that'll happen because I think Trossard is... Trussard's experience and and profile, I think in particular, I feel like he's going to be important in Champions League. I don't know why I think that exactly. And I think the, the, the possibility of him playing Champions League football means he's not going to leave. I don't think he'll leave. I don't worry about that really at all. And I don't, I don't see a wild card departure really. Unless some kind of crazy offer comes in and we haven't done anything else in the window and we are basically forced to do it. I mean, does that does that worry you? That if we don't get any money in that... I mean, I'm seeing stories about Balogun and Chelsea this morning. How true that is, I don't know. But like the longer it goes on without the, the right kind of bid from Monaco or, whoever, or Fulham, whoever it might be, you know, the more you are forced into making decisions that you wouldn't necessarily want to make. Yes, I do. Well, listen, we spoke about this with relation to Gabrielle, but I do wonder if Arsenal may need to bring some cash in, you know. Um, I'm just looking at the squad now and seeing if there's anyone who I think could be a, a surprise departure. I don't think so. I mean, partly because there are so many players we know that are available to transfer. Um, I don't think there'll be a big shock. I certainly hope not, because I've spoken about with Gabrielle, it'd be very difficult to place someone. And I don't see anyone outside of the obvious who's kind of surplus to requirements at this stage. Yeah, same, same. I think the important players we have are important players we need for the season ahead, you know? Yeah. I think my best guess is a bunch of people are going to leave on loan. We'll probably sell Balogun to somebody and a bunch of other players are going to go on loan deals. That's that's my hunch at this stage. Okay. Well, the the window closes September the 1st, which is a – oh, it's a Friday night as well, isn't it? So – It is. The day after the Champions League draw. Right. So – Guess we'll see who we draw before we decide if we need all these players. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do the deals on deadline. Well, well, that will be interesting. That will be interesting. So that's next week. All right. Well, look, um, I think we better leave it there for today. Uh, there is, of course, a game coming up on Saturday against Fulham. We'll look ahead to that in a bit more detail later in the week on the regular Arscast. For now, we'll leave it there, folks. And uh, thank you very much, as always, for being here. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.